Where's my cake, Bedelia? Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. Today, we're bringing you our deep dive into the 1982 horror comedy anthology film, Creepshow. I'm super excited to talk about this. We have dedicated the month of October to Stephen King. Uh, We've done our top 10 favorite Stephen King adaptions, and we've discussed a hot take on the latest It. Um, And now it's time to pick a movie and to sort of deep dive into it. And when Chris and I first made plans to start the Film Flamers, we made a huge list of movies that we would like to talk about, and Creepshow was very, very high on mine. So I'm super excited to to dive into this movie because I love it so much. It was all right. (laughs) (laughs) Creepshow was actually directed by Jorge Romero. Oh, my gosh. And written by Stephen King, making this film his actual, like, screenwriting debut. That's right. The makeup and creature effects were created by Tom Zavini, who, of course, previously worked with Romero on Dawn of the Dead. The film's ensemble cast includes Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver, Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson, and E.G. Marshall, as well as Stephen King himself. The film consists of five short stories, Father's Day, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, Something to Tide You Over, The Crate, and They're Creeping Up on You. Uh, two of these stories were adapted from Stephen King's previous work. Uh, they were short stories that were published in magazines back in the 70s. And the film is bookended by a prologue and epilogue scenes featuring a young boy named Billy, played by Stephen King's son, Joe, who is being punished by his father for reading horror comics. And that's Joe Hill, not Joe King, right? Right. He goes by Joe Hill now as an as an author. It's his, his nom de plume. Mm-hmm. So this is an anthology film, so it's going to be a little interesting how we cover this. So what we've done is that we've uh, we basically have synopsises, synopsises, synopsis, synopsi. <laughs> we have synopsi for all of the short stories, but we're going to talk about the stories a little bit after we each uh, after we read each synopsis. But before we get to that, this is Creep Show. Dum dum dum. La 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 la. Oh, it's Danny Elfman. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. Creep show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely Painful, Mr. Verrill. <laughs> Creep show will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. No, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creep show. The most fun you'll ever have, being scared. (laughs) 
So Creepshow debuted at Cannes on May 16th, 1982, and it was officially released in the U.S. on November the 12th, 1982. Its opening weekend grossed almost $6 million, and it replaced First Blood as number one at the box office that weekend. That's a Rambo movie, right? Yeah, it was the first Rambo movie. It went on to gross more than $21 million against its $8 million budget, making it the highest grossing horror film for Warner Brothers that year. Creepshow has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 68%. It has a Metacritic rating of 59, signifying mixed or average reviews. The consensus on Rotten Tomatoes reads, It's uneven, as anthologies often are, but Creepshow is colorful, frequently funny, and treats its inspiration with infectious reverence. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars and said that Romero and King have approached this movie with humor and affection, as well as with an appreciation of the macabre. And Vincent Canby from the New York Times says, The best things about Creepshow are its carefully simulated comic book tackiness and the gusto with which some good actors assume silly positions. <laughs> That's actually kind of true. Gary Arnold from the Washington Post wrote, uh, What one confronts in Creepshow is five consistently stale derivative horror vignettes of various lengths and defects. Oh. It's clear that he did not like this movie at all. Say, did I write that? Oh. <laughs> <I'm just joking>. <laughs> <laughs> The film has become a cult horror classic. Bravo actually awarded it the 99th spot on their 100th scariest movie moments, mostly for the scene with the cockroaches bursting out of Upton Pratt's body, which we'll get to, of course, as the last of the stories in this anthology. And I think that it's good to talk about one particular thing before we start the synopsis. Um, so Creepshow is sort of based on EC comics or entertaining comics. I was going to say, on. because after I watched this, it just reminded me like almost like Star Wars was based off of the serials of like the 40s, 50s and stuff. Flash uh-huh. Gordon, all that. This really felt like that, like the serials, like comics. And of course, it plays homage to that in the film itself with the comic Creepshow. But yeah, it's it's definitely an homage to the to the EC horror comics of the 1950s, like uh, Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, and Haunt of Fear. Um, so the, the, they really give it a horror comic feel in the movie. They use a lot of effects and like lighting and set design to make it feel like you're actually living in these EC comics, right? Mm-hmm. And these comics were way famous in the late 40s and into the 50s, pre-comic book code. Yep. And they relied very heavily on like sexual acts and very gruesome violence and lots of gore. And after that comics code, they were almost, you know, sort of shut out of business because they just couldn't operate anymore. Um, these people who created these comics went on to do Mad Magazine, which made a lot of money throughout its years, you know, and these things just sort of like just sat on the shelves and Mm -hmm. people remember them fondly. People like George Romero and Stephen King, Tom Savini, you know, all get together to make a movie that sort of page homage to this and it wasn't the first one to do so. I think that there were some British filmmakers back in the 70s who sort of wanted to revisit, and they actually made movies called Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror that featured actual EC Comics stories sort of brought to life for the first time on screen. Well, yeah, and Marvel Comics in the 60s even and 50s uh, for DC and before they were DC and Marvel were coming out with like strange tales mm-hmm. and, you know, um, horrific tales to, you know, to tell and things like that. And, uh, they would have all those mummy stories and, and, you know, big monster stories and creepy stories before, uh, like you said, pre-comic code. And after Creepshow, I think that people started to remember a little bit more fondly or like, you know, 
actually discover for the first time some of these comics and they're incredibly valuable today. I think a lot of people really enjoy that work. And there was an explosion of anthologies that came after Creepshow, especially on television, where we have things like Tales from the Dark Side that George Romero actually made for TV. Yeah. And then, you know, most famously, HBO's Tales from the Crypt. Yep. So there's a lot to mine in Creepshow. There's a lot to mine in these comics and, you know, where they came from. And I think that you peppered throughout our conversation of Creepshow, we'll probably come back to this idea and topic and, you know, sort of aesthetic and really pay some homage to that ourselves. Warner Brothers had a really, like, unusual release strategy for this film. Like, instead of opening uh, wide during, like, the what's generally considered the lucrative summer season, the studio gave it a four-week trial run in Boston-area theaters in July of uh-huh. 1982. But after it did really good business, Warner Brothers ended the trial and prepared for a wider release in November 1982, thinking that the bizarre R-rated horror film was best position was as close as possible to Halloween, uh, and that a pre-October 31st release would be a non-starter because it would have had to compete with Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh, wow. But uh, Warner Brothers actually forecast correctly that the new Halloween 3 movie that did not feature Michael Myers was a depart- departure and that audience would kind of like reject it, uh, which they kind of did. Yeah. And the third Halloween movie would burn out quickly and leave the horror field open for this movie to do impressive business, which it did. So, uh, you know, of course, Halloween 3 has, has found its place and it has a cult following of its own now. But they were correct to assume that audiences, audiences in, at general would initially reject it because it didn't have Michael Myers, Jamie Lee Curtis, right? So they actually played that well. And this this film did did really, really well. It was a big surprise. But it also had, you know, the kind of the, the combination of horror greats at the time, mm-hmm. which, of course, is Jorge Romero, Stephen King and Tom Savini. And they were. I mean, at the time, Stephen King's novels were flying off the shelf. He was making tons of money, obviously a best-selling author. George Romero's, you know, zombie trilogy was well on its way to toward completion. People really received those movies favorably. A lot of horror fans fell in love with it. And Tom Savini crafted some of these makeup effects for Dawn of the Dead. And he was highly regarded. I think after that, he started work on a lot of these, like, low-budget 80s slashers. And, yeah, and you, you know, know what? As far as other makeup artist effects, like, I feel like he's a little scrappy. Like he's really, really scrappy and almost amateurish in the way he goes about some things and some things are great. And it's like hit or miss with him Yeah, to me. Like he does one animatronic monster in this and he was on the phone all night with Tom Botton because the thing had just come out right. and the thing still holds up today with a lot of the effects they did with animatronic monsters. Well, and Rob Botton also did the werewolves in the howling, which came out beforehand. Too. Yeah. So, and uh... unfortunately, Tom Savini cannot hold a candle to that work. And he tried. It was his first animatronic monster in Creepshow in one of these stories in the crate. And it just doesn't hold a candle. But you know what? He tried and it, and it works. Um, it's funny you t- talk about like the unusual release strategy for that. And I think that's right. I think that a lot of horror makers these days could learn a lot from something like that. I think horror fans sort of like flood the market in October and we go see a lot of horror movies and do a lot of spooky things and everything's on TV. But come October 31st and the end of Halloween, we're sort of left bereft of anything horror as we move into the holiday season. And some people like myself prefer a little after ween stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and to release a movie after Halloween to continue that spooky feeling, I think, is a fantastic marketing strategy. The way that they 
premiered this movie at Cannes was also a little like different or sort of off the wall. They created this movie independently like George Romero normally does with his work. Yeah. And didn't have a distributor at the time. They really wanted Warner Brothers to do it. Warner Brothers had a string of like horror hits and they took it to Cannes and a couple of days beforehand, they took out this two-page ad in the New York Times, right? Two full pages saying that Creepshow is coming. It's George Romero. It's Stephen King. It's going to be released in October, you know, which they didn't have an official release date for. They figured out where the distributors who were visiting Con for that festival that year were staying, and they sort of delivered these New York Times newspapers to their hotel room doors. They found the smallest theater they could possibly find to show this movie, hoping that it would be crammed full. And it was so much so that the you know, president or whoever was there from Warner Brothers couldn't get into the screening. Mm-hmm. And so he had to contact them afterward and say, hey, I wanted to see this movie at Con, but I couldn't. They arranged a private screening for him and he took it right away. You'd think they would have saved a seat for the one they wanted. but you exactly. know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm not sure how any of that works, but that theater was crammed full. Yeah. So Romero always envisioned Creepshow as a franchise and thought that it could live on with many iterations, and it kind of has. Um, It spawned two sequels, Creepshow 2 in 1987 and Creepshow 3 in 2006. Creepshow 2 featured three vignettes based on Stephen King's short stories with a screenplay written actually by Romero himself. Creepshow 3 was a direct-to-video release that featured no involvement from King, Romero, or anyone else involved in the original productions. Uh, A new weekly series on Shudder, based on the original and created by Greg Nicotero, will premiere in September of this year. So it should already be out by the time you're listening to this. That's right. And it uh, was released on my birthday, actually. September 26th was the release date for the new Creepshow series. So it's like the best present that Shudder has ever given me. I mean, come on. (laughs) fan. Fantastic. Well, why don't we go ahead and deep dive into these uh, these the sections? Okay, let's do that. So let's start these synopses with the prologue. A young boy, Billy, played by Joe King, aka Joe Hill, Stephen King's son, is being disciplined by his father, Stan, played by Tom Atkins, for reading a horror comic called Creepshow. Billy is slapped by his father during the heated argument, while his concerned mother watches. Downstairs, Stan throws the comic in the trash outside, and sits with his wife explaining that he needed to be hard on the boy, because he does not want him reading such crap. Upstairs, an angry Billy hears a noise outside his window, and sees the creep, a skeleton reaper-like figure outside beckoning him. The wind blows the pages of the comic, to reveal the stories to come. Ellipses. <laughs> I think the prologue to this movie is really effective um, in a way that it sets up everything to come. And I think it sort of shows maybe the parental ideas about these EC comics back in the day. I think that a lot of kids were reading these sort of things in secret. It's not really something that parents wanted their kids to look at. Well, they really played that up. The whole father well, being yeah. mad about the comic and everything, slapping the kid. And of course, behind the scenes, Stephen King himself was very concerned about that and didn't want Tom Atkins to slap his kid. So <laughs> what he had him do was like a really quick cut uh, of George George Romero had a really, you know, was concerned. And so what he had him do was slap himself with his left hand. And it was a really quick cut. 
So it looks like he was slapped by Tom Atkins in the film. I was surprised. I was actually kind of shocked by that. Oh my god! And then, of course, it's a quick cut of him slapping himself. So it was a really good. Uh, it was a really good effect. But anyway, whatever. Well, and there's Side a note. huge <laughs> red mark on his face after that slap. You can only imagine like how fucking hard. But the kid it was been. super like straight faced. Like yeah. nothing just happened. You know? I know. You just hit me. Like this is a regular <laughs> occurrence or something. But I think that the the, the creep that we get to see. Fine, I'll go upstairs and play with my dolls. <laughs> That's just what I did as a kid. Um, the creep that Tom Savini has created that's standing outside the window, like beckoning to him. I, as a kid watching Creep Show, I was completely like amazed by it, you know? And by today's standards, it doesn't quite hold up. Oh my as, God, no. No, <laughs> it looks at horrible. All. I mean, I think Fucking he did Tom his Savini. best. That I mean, so that, I think they had all these illustrations. I told Matt, I turned around, I was like, that looks like a Halloween decoration. <laughs> <laughs> it does, really. I mean, like, yeah, it looks. I thought it was. I thought it was like a <clears throat> Halloween decoration hanging out of the window. And first. you could almost, I mean, you could almost like see the strings and things. Like that. I mean, like, yeah, I was just like, oh, wah, wah. he is that really scrappy. But as a kid, you know, it was effective to me. And I, I have to give him props because, like, they had illustrated all these things storyboard wise or whatever, you know, before they made these effects. And so he sort of modeled it after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a good way to, to introduce the movies and the stories because. In these comics, they all had their own kind of hosts, like the Crypt Keeper or the Witch, right? And so Creepshow has its own. Yeah, I mean, mean, horror hosts have always been a thing. What I don't, what I miss, I think, in Creepshow is that it doesn't speak, right? I mean, he's sort of like beckoning and it's quiet. And they flip through the pages of the comics so fast that you can't read some of these like pithy intros that they would use for these comics and later on, famously, in the HBO Tales from the Crypt series. I think the, the, the Crypt Keeper is a iconic horror figure and very funny, you know? And I think that adding that into this movie may have made it a little better. I think that having a person sort of dressed up in makeup or costume would a little have been a little bit more effective than just having some stationary figure like being beckoned with a string being pulled. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and go to this first story called Father's Day. The Grantham family has gathered together at their estate to celebrate Father's Day, which has become a tradition. Sylvia Grantham waits with her niece Cass, nephew Richard, and Cass's husband Hank, played by a very young Ed Harris. They're waiting for Bedelia, played by Vivica Landforce, who always arrives late. Sylvia recounts the story of Nathan Grantham's death several years earlier on Father's Day. Nathan Grantham was a miserly old patriarch whose fortune was made through bootlegging, fraud, and extortion. Needless to say, he wasn't such a nice man. During his later years, he was cared for by Bedelia, his spinster daughter, who had become very unstable due to the years of demands and abuse by her father, who also orchestrated the murder of her lover. While preparing his Father's Day cake and listening to his screams and taunts, Bedelia snaps and bludgeons her father with a marble ashtray. The scene is made to look like an accident, and Bedelia is never brought to justice for her crime. Every year since, the family gathers on Father's Day for dinner and cake. Bedelia, already drunk, arrives to the estate and stumbles to the cemetery to visit her father's grave and reminisce about his abuse and death. When she accidentally spills her whiskey bottle on the grave, Nathan's corpse is reanimated and emerges. He kills Bedelia while demanding the Father's Day cake he never received. Tired of dancing and waiting, Hank steps outside for a cigarette. He spots Bedelia's car and heads over to the cemetery to find her. 
There he trips over Bedelia's body and falls into Nathan's gravesite. Nathan's corpse appears and wills his giant headstone to fall on Hank, crushing him to death. Back at the house, Cass and Richard are hungry and whiny, so Sylvia decides to head to the kitchen to check on dinner. There she finds a messy scene and is confronted by Nathan, still demanding his cake. When Sylvia and Hank haven't returned, Cass begins to get worried. She asks Richard to go check on them. The two head toward the kitchen, where Nathan appears holding the severed head of Sylvia on a platter. (gasps) (laughs) She has been decorated with frosting. Richard and Cass scream in terror as Nathan exclaims that he finally got the Father's Day cake he was promised so many years ago. Where's my cake, Bedelia? Ed Harris is so (laughs) wasted in this. Like, what was he doing? I completely disagree. I think that Ed Harris in this movie is... Literally, he has like two lines and he goes outside and he gets a grave just pushed on him. And he's sitting there for like two minutes. And I was like, turned over to Matt and I was like, you have two minutes to get out of this (laughs) shallow hole in the ground. (laughs) He just stands there just going... (gasps) There's so many reaction shots of looking up at that stupid grave that's about to fall on him for like two minutes straight. And I'm like, what are you doing i fucking love when they are dancing to that disco song in like the parlor area just the looks on his face is so incredibly funny to me like he's doing it so straight faced and like shaking his head and like i mean it's just like fucking hilarious i love him in this movie i mean there are no such things as small roles right you got to take what you have and work with it and he did this as a personal favor to george romero because he was previously in Romero's movie Night Riders, which um, to me is not very good. <laughs> but I mean, and Stephen King was in that movie too, I think. Um, so, I mean, he, he worked with George before. He came on as a favor. I don't think that a lot of the people that are cast in this movie minded doing it right because for some of these people it's out of their element to do a horror movie or whatnot like Vivica Linfors was in so many of these like swashbuckling adventures and like the early days of cinema the golden age of cinema and she showed up for this and well she also asked at the gravesite her drunken grave scene you know uh, if she could just ad lib it oh really yes and so it turns out later many years later she said I actually asked to ad lib it and I did it. And it was all based on my own feelings about my father and my secret feelings about my now ex-husband. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Because she gets into it, too. She's like, boot, like off, or whatever. You know? <laughs> yep. I mean, so good. <laughs> Fun fact. <laughs> so, uh, oh, really? Yeah. Shit. I, um, she used it as free therapy. So. <laughs> I watched uh, the making of documentary movie. Uh, it's it's the making of Creepshow. It's called Just Desserts. I, I really wouldn't recommend it. I mean, unless you just love, love, love Creepshow. I didn't garner a whole lot of information from it, but Ed Harris is one of the people who pops up to do an interview. Oh. And He's he really spends a lot of time just talking about that dance scene and, and nothing else, you know. So, I mean, I just I don't know. I I like this segment only because George Romero has got to have some sort of zombie something or other. In I it. hate freeze frame shock moments. And that's how this ends with him with a cake and them all frozen in shock or whatever. And it literally just freezes the frame like it's on pause. And I hate that. I well, hate they, it so much. And do it just that. doesn't start. It just doesn't start off very well for me. Well, they, they do that because it's, I mean, it's, it's part of the comic, right? So they're, there's like, they're ending yeah. at that last segment of the comic. It just right? seemed especially, <laughs> especially bad here. <laughs> 
especially they do Lisa. That. They do that in every segment, and yeah. they kind of transition to like a comic drawn look, mm-hmm. and they kind of zoom out from the comic, which is great, you know. But this one, it just like they held on a little too long on the freeze frame, and I'm just like dun dun dun, and I'm like, okay, this isn't that bad. Like, I'm like, okay, I would have rather it been like brains flying off screen or something like that, you know, for it to be like shocking or something. But it was just them reacting to the to the scene with the dead guy holding the cake and being like, I got my cake. I got my cake. I also, I didn't know that Bernie Sanders was an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Bernie Sanders did a good job as Nathan, didn't he? It's a national treasure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kicking myself now for not including any creep show quotes in our last, uh, you know, special episode of like top horror movie quotes. Cause where's my cake? Father's day has so many things like that. Where's my cake Padilla? And I finally got my cake. And when every time they say Padilla, I'm like, Amelia Padilla. (laughs) (laughs) I just like it. Especially, especially when Sylvia, the character, calls her niece a hog, right? It's just like, oh, they're hogs. (laughs) This this segment is really just about, like, rich people getting their comeuppance, you know? And I I just, I'm there for it. I love it. I really want to see a remake of this, but with, like, the cast of Downton Abbey. (laughs) That would be so good. (laughs) (laughs) With Maggie Smith of the Gravesite drinking whiskey. <laughs> Hell yes, I am totally there for that. Um, I think that the, the the corpse of Nathan is pretty gnarly looking, right? I, I like that it's like just almost full on skull, right, and just yeah. dirty and gross and whatnot. And I mean. I know that people, critics have said that, you know, some of the segments are uneven and, you know, I can agree with that because this certainly isn't the best segment no, of the movie. It's the second worst. But it's, I mean, to me, it's fun. It's a good way to to get things started. And I think that, you know, Romero needed to throw that zombie knot in there. And it's a good way to do it right at the beginning. Let's transition into the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, the worst segment of Creepshow. Oh, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Jordy Verrill, played by Stephen King, is a down-on-his-luck, alcoholic, nitwit who witnesses a meteor crash land in his yard. He investigates the glowing meteorite in a small crater and begins to fantasize of selling it to the local college for money. He stupidly reaches in to touch the object and burns himself. To cool it down, he fetches a pail of water and tosses it on. The rapid cooling breaks the meteor in twain, releasing a glowing ooze Meteor shit. <laughs> Meteor shit. That comes in contact with his skin. Jordy realizes that no college would ever buy a broken meteorite and heads inside to console himself with a bottle of vodka. In front of the TV, Jordy finds that a weed-like organism is sprouting from the blisters on his finger from the meteor burn. He sticks them in his mouth and imagines a visit to the doctor who will surely want to remove his hand. He continues to drink and eventually falls asleep. When he awakes, he's horrified to find that he's grown a beard of weeds, as well as weeds growing all over his body. His body is unbearably itchy, and Jordy heads to the bathroom to jump into the tub to soothe the itch. There, he sees a vision of his father, appearing to him to warn about getting into the water with plant life growing on him that is surely what the organism wants. Unable to control himself, Jordy gets into the tub of water to stop the itch. The next morning, 
Jordy's house and land are covered in weeds, and now he's totally overtaken by the plants. He decides the only solution is to kill himself. He begs for his luck to be good just this once, as he aims for his weed-covered head and fires the shotgun. From the TV, a newscaster gives a local weather report. He explains that the surrounding areas will be getting a ton of rain in the upcoming weeks, which should cause a lot of plant growth. The weeds are seen growing on the road that leads into town. The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill was based on a previously released Stephen King short story called Weeds. I think it was printed in Cavalier. I mean, maybe in the, the mid to late 70s. Um, I like this segment. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that about every fucking segment in the show, so I'll just stop saying it now. But I, I really enjoy this, mostly because I love Stephen King so, so much. And anytime I get a chance to see him or even hear him, like if he's narrating his own audiobooks and things like that, it's the first thing that I buy and listen to. I listen to him all over again because I just I love to hear him talk. I love to see him act. And he, he is really so over the top here. And a lot he of hands it up. Yeah. George Romero's direction. Yeah. He told him to act like. Like Wiley E. Coyote or whatever when mm-hmm. he like yeah. got burned. Like take it like to Roadrunner levels of, you know, like acting and whatnot. And I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I'm totally fine with like camp horror and things like that. And a lot of creep show is super, super campy. Um, and I think that his acting in this is is funny, right? It makes me laugh all the way through it up into the really disturbing and kind of sad ending. It totally takes this weird about face, you know, like toward the end of the segment. And it's just like, it's almost devastating. You know, we see this character that we've been laughing at the entire time. And by the time that he's sitting covered in weeds with a shotgun pointing at his head, I mean, that's disturbing and upsetting and sad. Yeah. Um, so Tom Atkins wanted to play Jordy Verrill at first. He didn't want to play the dad in the, the closing and opening scenes. He wanted to play Jordy Might Verrill. have been better for it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, or different. I feel like the dad being Stephen King would have been more interesting, too. He could, maybe he could have actually slapped his son. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or wanted to. Um I don't know. At this point, I've seen this so many times. I just cannot imagine anybody else playing this role. And I mean, I like I said, I have no problems with the way that Stephen King acted in it. I think it's it's fantastic. So I I'm there for it. It was so camp, but not like like the story is not camp. No. You know how it's handled is not camp, but the acting is so camp that it just was it was just like this is not opening great for me. But it started to win me over with this next segment called something to tide you over. Harry Wentworth, played by Ted Danson, is awoken by the sounds of knocking on his apartment door, which he opens to find a very angry Richard, played by Leslie Nielsen, who confronts Harry about the affair he's having with his wife Becky, played by Galen Ross. He views Becky as his property. At gunpoint, he forces Harry to accompany him to his large, deserted beach estate called Comfort Point. He forces Harry into a hole and buries him up to his neck in sand. Richard sets up a television and shows that Becky is in a very similar situation further down the beach. The monitor shows Becky pleading for her life as waves from the incoming tide pummel her face. An angry Harry demands that Richard let them go, but Richard will hear none of it. He prepares to leave, but explains to Harry that he can survive if he can hold his breath long enough to free himself from the sand when the tide comes in. 
Richard heads back to his house to watch the two deaths from a closed-circuit TV. As the tide sweeps in around Harry, he turns to the camera pointed at him and vows revenge. The water soon covers Harry's head, and he drowns. Richard returns to the scene of the murders to find that the bodies are missing. He chalks it up to the tide carrying them away and returns home to shower for bed. While in the shower, Richard's security system is triggered, and cameras begin to monitor the house. The sea-rotted corpses of Harry and Becky stumble through the house toward Richard, who hears a strange noise and gets out of the shower. Richard is accosted by the corpses. He tries to shoot them to no avail, as they are already dead. The corpses take Richard to the beach where they bury him up to the neck in sand and wait for the tide to kill him. He screams that he can hold his breath for a very long time as the waves begin to crash on his face. So, I really kind of loved this segment, especially relevant to the, or as compared to the previous two. This is where it kind of started to grow on me. Yeah. And I loved seeing uh, Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. Always. Leslie Nielsen is, I mean, like, I know we throw around the words national treasure a lot, but come on. I mean, Leslie Nielsen, Jesus. And he played this, uh, he played this kind of a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. Uh, He played it very straight, Mm -hmm. but also that he was enjoying what he was doing. That he enjoys himself quite a bit. Yeah. And it really was realistic portrayal. Like, I felt like it was really done well. Mm -hmm. Ted Danson was great. Uh, you know, but I love hearing that on set, of course, Leslie Nielsen has to, you know, keep things light. And so he had a fart machine in his pocket. I think like famously, he traveled with that fart machine everywhere, no matter what movie he was making. It's yeah. just, that's just who Leslie Nielsen and is. It was constantly cracking up, of course, for <laughs> Hey Romero. <laughs> Oh, fuck. And so it was just a fun thing for, the, for them to film, I think, because, of course, between the two of them, they're both great comedic actors, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm sure that was a fun set to be on. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, out of all the five vignettes in this, this one is my favorite. It, mm-hmm. it always has been. You know, every time I watch Creepshow, I sort of like some of them more or less than the other ones, and it changes with time. But, you know... Statically, this one is always my favorite. It's so good. It's the closest to an actual EC comic story. Yeah. You know, there's a it's a morality tale. And at the end, you know, someone gets his comeuppance. And that's exactly what EC did so, so well. Yeah. And it's just fantastic. And I love Les- Leslie Nielsen. Um, in that documentary when they were talking about performances, right? Um, obviously, they couldn't have had Leslie Nielsen do an interview because he's passed. But uh, they were showing some outtakes. And Leslie Nielsen has Ted Danson on the beach, and he's holding him at gunpoint, and he's trying to deliver like this monologue, right? And doing it so straight-facedly. But in the background, you can hear these planes flying over, right? And he, he's getting toward the end of his monologue, and he just loses his cool. And he's like, fuck! And he starts shooting the gun up in the air at the plane flying over. <laughs> and I just like lost my shit. It was so funny. And then subsequently, they were showing outtakes of Ted Danson and all of his like sea rotted makeup walking through the house. And they were like, we're already dead, Richard. And Galen Ross is saying something and she repeated it. And Ted Danson goes, you already said that. You know what I mean? So clearly it was a really fun set to be on. Well, it's yeah. funny because he was in that full makeup and he thought it was scary and it's scary looking. It's yeah. a person. But uh, he was his daughter would come to set. 
And it was just a small daughter, uh-huh. his child daughter. And so he would try and kind of hide and be out of view from his daughter while he was in that makeup. And of course, inevitably, he ran into her and he was just so like concerned that he would scare his daughter. And his daughter came up to him and was like, hi, dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, it, it worked out, but uh, it was a, it's a good, it's a really good segment. Yeah. I, I really, I really enjoy this segment. I like a lot of the production design in this segment because I really, they, they took that comic book feel and they sort of like ramped it up. I think in the, in the best ways in some of these other segments it feels sort of like forced or weird but like when you see Ted Danson's head covered in water and the background flips to red right and it has that comic book kind of background and you see him drown I mean I, I find that effective I can totally see that being some sort of like cell in a comic book you know yeah. I mean it's it's perfect um, I've read some reviews that say you know well why does George Romero have like two zombie stories in his anthology and isn't he doing that enough and blah 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 I think that like sea rotted zombies is a a difference. It's a change. It feels a little bit more Cthulian in a way. Yes, I mean it's totally different. Like I don't really view them as zombies so much as maybe just like ghosts from a watery grave or something. You see, like the the, we did laugh at like the you see Ted Danson drowning underwater and he's so angry that this is happening that you see a red glow around his head (laughs) and both me and Matt were just like (laughs) laughing. Yeah. So you know maybe it was under his own power, but obviously the the you know. The, the woman came back too and again with quotes I mean so like quotes from Father's Day and quotes from Jordy Verrill this has got its good share too things like we're already dead Richard or if you can hold your breath Richard I mean if like you can hold your breath <laughs> <laughs> I just fucking love it it yeah. is and always will be the best segment in Creep Show. but then there's the crate Dexter Stanley, played by Fritz Weaver, is a philandering anthropology professor, and Henry Northup, played by Hal Hobrook, a henpecked English professor, are attending a faculty garden party with Henry's wife Wilma, played by Adrienne Barbeau. But we can call her Billy. Everyone does. Billy is a foul-mouthed, overbearing wife whom Henry often daydreams of murdering. While at the party, a janitor on campus drops a coin and discovers a very old crate labeled Arctic Expedition that has been stored on campus for years below the stairs, if not decades. He calls Dexter, who heads to the campus to investigate. As the janitor and Dexter open the crate, an ape-like monster with sharp fangs attacks the janitor and devours him completely. Dexter frantically escapes and runs into a grad student and explains the situation. Skeptical, the grad student goes to investigate further, but is also killed by the creature. Dexter flees the scene and goes to Henry for help. Dexter tells Henry that the creature must be destroyed somehow, but Henry sees this as an opportunity to rid himself of his nag of a wife once and for all. With Dexter passed out, Henry lures his wife to the college with a letter explaining how Dexter had attacked a young co-ed, who has cornered herself in a small area and won't come out. He asks for Billy to come and help him, as only Billy knows how to handle a situation. What would he do without her? Billy arrives and goes to the area with the crate, but finds no co-ed. Henry pushes her at the crate, but the creature does not emerge. Billy chides Henry for his actions and begins to berate him again. During her tirade, the creature emerges, mauling and eating Billy completely. Henry secures the beast back into its crate, and later drops it into a lake where it sinks to the bottom. Henry returns to Dexter and tells him that the monster has been disposed of, and that it will never again be found. Later, at the bottom of the lake, 
it is clear that the beast has escaped. So the crate was the other section that was uh, based on previous work of Stephen King. It was also published in a magazine, and it was called The Crate. So. I really, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one. I did, too. It was just really, really well done. I felt like it could have even been longer. Like, I really enjoyed um, Adrian Barbeau's performance here. That's amazing. She's so good in this particular role, and it's it's so different than what she normally portrays on a screen, right? So, I mean, like, Adrienne Marbeau's a famous actress, both in horror films and otherwise. She was on Maude for seven seasons and, you know, had some, like, comedic acting in that. And then later on, she married John Carpenter and was in several of his movies, things like Escape from New York and The Fog. And these characters are nothing like Billy. Oh, I know. She was so different in The Fog, I didn't realize it was the same person. She's even the voice of the, the computer in The Thing. Oh, yeah. Like they're playing chess and whatnot. That's that's Adrian Barbeau. Hmm. And so she was sent the script. It was a direct offer from George Romero and Stephen King. She was married to John Carpenter at the time. Right. And they, they wanted her to do this. And she read the script and she was like, no, I can't do this. She's like, it's way too gory and gross. And she was just like, it's just not for me. And John Carpenter at the time was just like, what are you doing? This is George Romero and Stephen King. Of course you have to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so she did it. And so now, I mean, according to the documentary, Just Desserts, and she was just on RuPaul's podcast of all things and talking about this. And she says that it's one of her favorite characters that she's ever done. I think she really got to let go and have fun. And she is, quite frankly, maybe the most memorable character from Creepshow. Yeah, honestly. And the other thing I like about The Crate is that they got two very serious actors to come in and do this work. I mean, like, Fritz Weaver and Hal Holbrook were highly regarded as dramatic film actors. But they were also, I think... If not one, both of them were veterans of like the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's possible. I'm I'm sure. I mean, because I think a lot of actors came in to do that anthology series. It ran for a very long time. And it stands to reason that Hal Holbrook would be on there. Yeah. I mostly know him from his work on designing women in the 80s, (laughs) right? Playing Julia Sugarbaker's like boyfriend or love interest and whatnot. So, I mean, I do love Hal Holbrook and I think that he's good in this movie. And this, again, is just one of those like it's so obviously – you know, uh, based on EC work, it's a morality tale sort of, you know, um, the only difference is, is that I don't, I mean, does Billy really need to die for being a nagging, overbearing, loudmouth wife? I oh mean, does, God, does she yes. deserve that? I mean, yes. <laughs> oh, God. No. No, Matt and I were like cheering when she finally got ripped apart. She was so bad. So toxic. God, I just hope that I'm not a spouse like that. I mean, like, if you ever hear me, like, screaming at my husband from What across, would you do without me? I mean, clearly, I've probably said that to him before. <laughs> I mean, God. Oh, God, really? I'm sitting here holding a drink in my hand, too, right now. So clearly, <laughs> clearly I am, Billy. Fuck Ugh. me. But yeah, no, I mean, she was just, she's so viciously nasty in this movie, and it's just, it's so good. She was always walking around, like, drinking, like, scotch and milk or something like that. It just sounds so gross, and I was, I yeah. don't know. Those are a lot of bad traits, and you can only hope that they're not creeping up on you. Oh, what a wonderful segue. (laughs) What would I do without you? (laughs) What would I do without you, Chris? Epson Pratt, played by E.G. Marshall, is a cruel, ruthless businessman whose misophobia has him living in an aromatically sealed apartment controlled completely with both electric locks and surveillance cameras. 
His apparent contacts with the outside world are through the telephone, where people call to denounce him for ruining their families, and Mr. White, a put-upon employee who is made to run errands. During a severe lightning storm, Pratt finds himself looking out his window at New York City as a rolling blackout travels his way. When it hits his apartment tower, terror begins for Pratt, who finds himself helpless when hordes of cockroaches overrun him. As the situation becomes rapidly worse, he locks himself inside a panic room, only to find that roaches have already infested the space. With no way to escape, he is swarmed by roaches, which induce a fatal heart attack. Later, as the electricity returns, Pratt's body is seen inside the panic room, now devoid of roaches. However, Pratt's corpse begins to contort as cockroaches grotesquely burst out of his mouth and body, re-enveloping the panic room. Mr. White calls in to report but gets no answer. He says to himself as the roaches crawl over Pratt's body, What's the matter, Mr. Pratt? Bugs got your tongue? It reminds me of Scrooge. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. He it's, looks like a Scrooge. He does, right? yeah. you know, but it's also the most expensive of these segments. Yeah. Because they had to buy each cockroach, mm-hmm. and each cockroach was 50 cents. So this cost them $150,000 of cockroaches to do this segment. I also learned from the documentary that they couldn't find enough, right? So they got these two entomologists who work for the Natural History Museum in New York to go somewhere and collect roaches. And so they went to this place where— My kitchen. <laughs> everyone's kitchen this is the south um they went to this place i forgot where it was and like oh, these roaches were living in guano right bat feces and so they would just like get down in that bat feces and they would dig a hole in it and turn off the light and for just like five or ten seconds and they would turn the light back on and that entire hole in the guano was filled with roaches they said in this documentary that they could lay down in the guano and their bodies would be carried by the fucking roaches beneath <gasps> them and that is so gross no! to me yes Ugh. and they, when they were filming this they, they were that <laughs> they were filming this in a school right they they got the school off season they built all these sets and they were supposed to account for every fucking roach that they let loose 300,000 of them and they got about half of that back <laughs> So that fucking place was infested with roaches for God knows how long. Oh, I mean, that's just nasty. I mean, like this lawsuit. <laughs> I, I'm not scared of bugs, really, you know, but uh, this this segment is, is nasty. It's gross to me. Like all those, all those bugs well, crawling on his body. That, that panic room, you know, with halfway full of roaches or at least the walls to make mm-hmm. it look like it was filled. And I mean, like, I think this was my favorite part of that documentary watching it. Cause I learned so much about how they did it. Like they used to fill these like tubes with the roaches and they would air pump them and push them through the vents when it was coming out. Right. And they, when they created that body, they had a hole on the bed that he was laying on. Right. And they sort of like, um, pre-cut these holes in his neck and put toilet paper over it to make it look like skin and then just pushed and pushed until all these bugs were coming out and they were like there were so many bugs that they got stuck on the way out and it was just like just hordes and hordes of roaches and I cannot imagine working on that fucking set it's so gross shit it's effective though I mean like yeah, I was surprised that that was effective as it was. The body looked as realistic as it did. Yeah. You can tell it's fake. But I mean, like, the effects of the blood coming out, too, when it's just filling his body and they're coming out of his neck and his mouth and everything else. It was just mm. disgusting. I mean, such a, such an effective story. I mean, it's, it's an effective... Went out with a bang. 
Yeah, yeah. I the mean, last really. segment. Yeah, I mean, it did. So, I mean, I I think it's safe to say when people call this uneven. I mean, I have to agree with it because I think that the latter segments of the movie are much stronger than the first. Yeah, so two. it kind of builds. Yeah, and I don't know if that's especially good or bad. I think that you really need to start things off with a bang as well as end I would have saved like the best, you know, for the first and the end. I think I almost would have started with the crate. And then worked on from there. Yeah, and then finished with this one. Yeah, you know, and maybe have like, is there something to there's something to tide you over right before the bug one? Right, I think I think the order is just messed up in these. Yeah, I don't think the vignettes are necessarily bad on their own. I think they're just misplaced in the movie, right? Yeah, and I mean, the the weakest are the first two. Yeah, for sure. And now for the epilogue. Back in the real world, two garbage collectors find the Creepshow comic book in the trash where Stan left it. They thumb through it and look at the advertisements for items like x-ray glasses and a Charles Atlas bodybuilding kit. They find that someone has clipped the coupon to order a voodoo doll. At breakfast with his wife, Stan begins to feel and complain of neck pain. The situation rapidly becomes severe and deadly. Upstairs, Billy is seen repeatedly and gleefully stabbing a voodoo doll, exacting revenge on his father. The end. (laughs) I think this is a perfect wrap-up to this movie, because I know that kids, a lot of times back in these comics, would send off for things like x-ray glasses and voodoo dolls, you know what I mean? I have the original X-Men comic number one from 1963, and it has that Atlas bodybuilding, like, no shit, ad in there, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And so, I mean, like, it's just another another way they're paying homage to this. And it was a really good wrap up to the story with the, the, the son and his father exacting his revenge in a way that, you know, like, I'm going to read these comics and I'm going to watch horror movies because he had posters on his wall of horror movies and things like that, whether you like me to or not. And I think that people like Stephen King, and George Romero grew up reading these comics and liking those like Saturday matinees of horror movies and, you know, everything they could possibly get their hands on as far as horror goes whether or not they were supposed to or allowed to or if anyone liked it and it sort of made them who they are today and it goes to show you that no matter you know you can love things that are dark and macabre or scary as a kid doesn't make you a bad person later on in life yeah if anything i mean my god could be a millionaire billionaire whatever stephen king is today you know I want to talk a little bit about the sequels that came after Creepshow. Uh, This was the first watch for Chris, right? Yep. Um, Creepshow 2, uh, written by George Romero, and it was directed by somebody else who who worked on the original production, had three stories. All of these were based on Stephen King short fiction. Uh, Most of them are pretty bad, save the middle one, which is The Raft. So, I mean, even more so and even than this original Creepshow. Creepshow 3, I have not seen, but it is, I mean, it's like historically and famously reviewed as a terrible, terrible movie. Even people in the horror community don't like this you know so i just i've never sat down to watch it and so when the new series of creep show was announced for shutter i think a lot of people were applauding a sort of return to form as far as creep show goes i know the um the very first episode of that is based on a stephen king short story so it's sort of staying true to everything um but i mean anthology formats work for me 
in horror. I just, I like them quite a bit. And I think that this movie is, if anything, if, I mean, I think it's good. A lot of people don't, but I think it's important as far as like horror movies go, just because of the people involved in it. If you have a movie in 1982 that is directed by George Romero, written by Stephen King, makeup effects by Tom Savini. I mean, there's just like three icons of, of, you know, seventies and eighties horror. And it's, it's an important movie to watch. Okay. So I have some fun facts just for you. I love these. Okay. Hit me so with it. Some of these you probably already know because I think I've mentioned them a few times, but uh, the marble ashtray, which is of course the major role in father's day as a murder weapon is featured in all five of the film segments. If you look closely in father's day, obviously it's the murder weapon that's talked about and it's shown to viewers multiple times in the lonesome death of Jordy Farrell is next to the cash box um, at the Department of Meteors. The Department of Meteors. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and something to tide you over, it's on the nightstand next to Richard's bed, Leslie Nielsen. And in the crate, it's on the writing desk when Henry writes his letter to Wilma. And in They're Creeping Up on You, it's, all, it's the soap dish when Upston Pratt is washing his hands. And in the uh, wraparound story, it's on Billy's desk when he first starts stabbing the voodoo doll. That's crazy. I had no idea. I mean, of course, I I would never notice anything like that, really, which is why I love these fun facts. But um, we noticed when we were watching me and Matt. Yeah, I I have never ever seen that. Um, although, why is there a marble ashtray in a child's bedroom? We don't know, and <laughs> we also don't know why it's a soap dish. So, <laughs> I mean, a soap dish I can see, but I mean, in a child's bedroom, who knows? <laughs> Maybe he got it in a coupon from the <laughs> In uh, Father's Day, Aunt Bedelia's father comes to life after she spills whiskey on his grave. In Gaelic, the word for whiskey is translated to water of life and is possibly a nod to James Joyce in his book Finnegan's Wake. Yes. In the book, a builder's laborer falls from a ladder and breaks his skull, but is revived when someone spills whiskey on the corpse at the wake. The story of Finnegan's Wake, in turn, is based on an old Dublin street ballad. It's an amazing novel. So that could have been a nod to that. Yeah. Stephen King had an allergic reaction to the makeup he had to wear for Jordy Verrill's transformation for all those plants and weeds growing on him. Uh-huh. It looked itchy as fuck. Yeah. He was subjected to shots and medication so the work would be bearable. Oh, my God. During a break in filming, Stephen King took his son to McDonald's. And as a joke, Joe was made up with bruises, cuts, and scabs. Allegedly, the girl at the drive through window called the police when she saw him. <laughs> You know what? That fucking seems like something that Stephen King would do. You know, and I think that his portrayal of Jordy Verrill really, I mean, and this goes to show you, Stephen King's kind of a buffoon. He's kind of a clown. I don't think that it took too much prodding on George Romero's part to make him ham it up anymore. According to Jonathan Tiersten, the crew of Creepshow was also the crew for Sleepaway Camp. From no shit. Three. Really? Based on the credits. Yeah. Oh, my God. So who knows if that's true, but that's what Jonathan Tiersten says, who, of course, was the brother in Sleepaway Camp. Yep. And my last fun fact, because I mentioned a lot of them throughout when we were talking about the stories themselves. They were peppered in. Was the uh, this is the only George A. Romero or sorry, Jorge Romero film to open up at number one at the weekend box office. That's so surprising to me, actually. I mean, I, I don't know why. I know that. I mean. Dawn of the Dead, they couldn't even like run some print ads or things for for some reason. But I mean, it came. It turned out to be a very successful movie. Sure, a lot of his are sleepers or cults, cool hits. Yeah, 
And they make a lot of money because he works independently and finds distributors. I mean, like, but it's surprising to me that he's only had one number one hit. I think mm. that if he were still making movies today, especially with like the, the horror renaissance that we have had and sort of like a reverence toward, you know, older 70s and 80s horror directors, I think he'd probably surpass that at this point. Mm hmm. So, well, here at the Film Flamers, we like to ask a series of questions about the movies that we watch. And first of all, we'll ask, is Creepshow a horror movie? What Obviously, a, yes. What a stupid question to ask about <laughs> Creepshow. It's called Creepshow. It's based upon <laughs> horror comics. So, <laughs> clearly, this is a horror movie. Yes. I mean, do you find it effective as a horror movie? I don't. Some of them. Yeah. yeah. Certainly back in 1982. Yes. I think that whenever you're talking about Creepshow and you're looking at practical effects and things like that, especially with the kind of budget that they had, I think we have to keep all of these things in mind yeah. watching it, you know, in 2019. And so. looking back at what was considered scary in 1979, 80, 81, 82, 83, like it's interesting to me. And then you look at like something like The Thing where it was actually panned on release. Yeah. I think it was just so scary that people just like did not respond to it. Like it was too dark for them. So like things like this were scary things like Halloween, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff where we're, we're at the limits of the scary, but the thing was almost too much, I think. And so uh, it didn't find its following or become a classic until many years later. Well, that leads into my next question. Were you scared watching creep show? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I mean, as a kid, I think I may have been scared by a couple things, but even, even as a kid watching it, I think I first saw this movie when I was around like eight years old or so. Um, it seemed like just a fun movie, you know, like yeah. nothing to get really scared at, but an enjoyable, fun ride. I think that if you're talking about things like quote unquote gateway horror, right. And you know, you have a younger kid who's trying to be interested in horror movies and you want to show them something that's, you know, a little bit harder, a little bit more r-rated but still not as bad as some things you can possibly watch this would definitely be a gateway this yeah. is the perfect thing for that sort of thing i show them seven <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna show my child seven first <laughs> then creep show maybe if there's time <laughs> and finally and some would say most important who's the hottest guy in creep show <laughs> um, um, oh wow, <laughs> maybe Ted Danson or the grad student from the crate. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think the easiest option would be to pick Ted Danson because I mean, back in the day, he was classically handsome, I guess. Right? I mean. Not really my type. But. Yeah, I don't. I would probably say. He's kind of tall and bird-like for me. <laughs> I think that Leslie Nielsen is really handsome in his yes. own way. No, yes. I was going to say. You know, I think out of all the, the leading men that are in this movie and famous actors they got and whatnot, I think Leslie Nielsen's kind of like classically handsome. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm digging the white hair and things like that. And I know that he was I mean, he's a very funny guy and he likes to do comedy, but early in his career he was sort of like typecast as a romantic lead or whatever, and that sort of fits. So Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well guys, let us know what you think of Creep Show. 
That's right. Tell us how much you love it, dislike it. Tell us which of the segments are your favorite. Tell us what you think about the sequels. Should I finally watch Creepshow 3? Let me know. And you can do that on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can call our hotline at 972-666-7733 and we'll put your opinion on the air on our next Shooting the Flames episode. We love getting all those voicemails, guys. Uh, if you want even more Film Flamers content, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to find all of our bonus segments. Sometimes we do some sequel ideas for the movies that we cover. And here recently we've started a new segment called Flamers Flashbacks where we revisit a movie from our youth or from the past, maybe something that one of us or both of us missed along the way. That's right. We've already covered things like The Abyss and The Dark Crystal. And this month, we're giving you a special treat with Maximum Overdrive. That's right. And there'll be some even more special content heading your way on Patreon. So head over there and check that out. You can get that bonus content for as little as $2. Well, guys, we hope that you've enjoyed all of our content in October. We've devoted this month to Stephen King. He's a staple in horror movies, horror books, horror stories, horror TV, everything, and continues to be so. We hope you've enjoyed everything. Stay tuned next month in November when we cover one of Chris's favorite movies, Interview with the Vampire. Yay! And guys, don't forget that last year for Halloween, we created our top 10 Halloween movies of all time. So go check that out in our history. That's right. If you're looking for a little inspiration as what to watch on Halloween night, go listen to that. There's a lot of movies for you to choose from, and it's one of our most popular episodes. So check it out. Well, until next month, guys, happy Halloween, and... Sweet dreams. dreams.